So where we're actually going to start tonight is not in those first verses. To establish us in the idea of the church's hospital, we're going to first go to Luke 5, starting in verse 27. Luke 5, verse 27. This will likely, if you've grown up in the church, be something that you recognize, especially as we get to the end. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he arose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them. This is so important. This is the foundation of a church's hospital. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those last verses have become pretty common in the church. That and its counterpart in the other gospels, especially in Mark. We put them on shirts. We put them everywhere. We put them on bumper stickers, on billboards. It's common. We know it. We see it. It is, in fact, normal to us to see this verse all the time. We quote it. We've heard sermons on it. We're familiar with it. But often the unfortunate thing with things that are common is that many times they lose their meaning. We see it. And it goes in one ear, out the other. It's mundane. I hope that by the end of this, it's common in a different way. It's common in a way that you actually are living it out consistently, constantly. It actually means something to you. You recognize these words and they're real to you. My brother's church back home in Alabama, where he lives, they do communion every Sunday. And someone posed the question to his pastor saying this of, what if it became common? And his response would be, how wonderful would that be? Because he recognized the two sides of that. They were thinking common, what if it became mundane? He was thinking, what if it became common as if What if they actually saw how great it was? What if it was celebrated every time? It should be common in the way that we recognize it to be as it should be. This should be the same way. We should see this verse and recognize it and see that this should in fact be the church everywhere, every time. I want to flesh this story out a little more. I like this one in Luke 
because it calls him Meth, it calls him Levi. But if any of you are familiar with this, it is in fact Matthew. This is the disciple. This is the one who was an outcast. He would have been hated both by the Jews and the Romans, an outcast of everyone. Because he was a tax collector, no one would have liked him. Not his own people. The Romans would have tolerated him. He was working for them, so they would have said okay. But the Pharisees, in their self-righteousness, they acknowledged and said, what are you doing with him? A tax collector and a sinner, Jesus, why are you with this guy? His own people would have wanted nothing to do with him, but he would have been so alone, an outcast, recognizing, I have no one, I have nothing. He's on the edge. But Jesus comes to him and in a simple gesture just says, come and follow me. We're not given more than that. That's all he says, come and follow me. He, recognizing who Jesus is, leaves everything, prepares a feast, and he doesn't want to leave it there. He invites all of his friends, everyone he knows, invites them into this room because he knows who Jesus is. He knows that he is precious, the one that is chosen and precious, the Son of God, invites them all to this feast, that they would share in this healing, that they would share, that the rest of them would come into the inner circle. that they would be a part of this as well. That just like him, he was on the outskirts. He was the one on the outer lines, hated by the rest, that they would come alongside him, getting to sit with Jesus, share a meal with him. But the Pharisees are the ones saying, what are you doing with them? Hating this. Guys, we do the same thing all the time. All the time, we can look at people and think, what are they doing with them? Why are you talking to that person? Why are you hanging out with that person at school? Don't you know their reputation? What are you doing with that person at the coffee shop? Don't you know what they've done? Don't you know the people they hang out with? They don't belong in the church. How many times has that thought gone through your head? They're not a Christian. What are you doing? In our puffed up self-righteous thoughts, we can be these exact Pharisees. But Jesus' call to them was actually to both people. It was to the Pharisees, and it was to Levi, it was to Matthew, but only one of them recognized the truth. Only one of them recognized that they were sick. Only Levi actually recognized, I'm sick, I'm in need of healing. And he invited all of his friends so that they would be healed too. 
Guys, that's what the church is meant to be. Jesus gave him a simple invitation. Often that's all it takes for us to recognize I'm sick, I'm in need of healing. And I know everyone else is hurting in need of healing too. They need a savior, they need a healer. And I can invite them in. Guys, that is the call of the church. That is what we're meant to be always. It was never meant to be. If you look to all of Acts, if you look to all of Paul's letters, it was never meant to be that it's a place that we show up on Sundays, grab our coffee, grab our donuts, do whatever, sing a few songs, say hi to our friends, and leave. It is meant to be a place where we gather together. It's not the building, it is the people gathering together for specific purposes. One of those purposes is that we would be healed together. And doing so constantly, even daily. If you look to the churches in the book of Acts, they were meeting in each other's homes consistently, not just Sundays. That is what we're called to be. That is what we're called to do. This story makes this pretty clear. I'll read it again, just this last few lines. That those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come to call, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Guys, all of us are the ones who are sick. All of us are the ones who are in need of healing and in need of repentance. Second story to look at. It'll actually be Acts 8. Another character, an important character in Scripture. His story starts here. It says that because of this man, I'm just going to go through this, paraphrasing most of it. It says that because of him, there arose such a great day of persecution that most of the people in this area fled. There was great lamenting and weeping because of him. He was going from house to house, grabbing people from their homes, beating them and throwing them into prison. A man of wrath. He was ravaging the church is what it was says. this son of disobedience, this child of wrath. And it says later on in chapter nine, still breathing threats of murder. He goes to the high priest again, all the while thinking he's the one that's righteous, all the while thinking he is the one that's good. He goes to the high priests, again, the Jewish leaders, asking for permission that he might go to Damascus and do the same thing, that he might grab more people, throw more into prison, throw more away beat even more, imprison even more. 
cause more hardship, more pain, more destruction. He goes on the road. At this point, most of you are probably recognizing this if you're familiar and have grown up in the church. He's going on the way and in a supernatural encounter, he meets Jesus Christ. He stopped on the road and he asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you hate me? He doesn't ask, why do you hate my people? Why have you been hurting them? He says, Saul, why do you hate me? Why are you persecuting me, the Lord Jesus Christ? He stops in there. He blinds him and tells him to continue on his way to where he's going, to Damascus. And there he will find a man named Ananias. Ananias will lay hands on him. He'll pray for him. And he would be healed and receive his sight and receive the Holy Spirit. His life is turned around. And he tells Ananias the same thing. He tells Ananias, go into a house. You'll find a man named Saul. You are to lay your hands on him. You are to pray for him. That he would be healed and that he would receive the Holy Spirit. Ananias at first says, God I know this guy. I've heard from many about him. You got to have the wrong guy. I know about this guy. You have to have the wrong guy. He asks him, he says that once to God. I know about this guy. Again, it seems like a reflection of the story that we look at about Levi, of these Pharisees asking Jesus, what are you doing with this person? What are you doing with Levi? What are you doing with Matthew? Why are you with them? And again, we so often do the same thing. Maybe I'm alone in it, but I don't think I am. I would guarantee pretty much that I I don't think I am the only one who has ever had that thought looking to someone else who is in sin, just like I was before Christ, thinking, there's no way that person doesn't belong in the church. That person can't be saved. Arrogantly, like I wasn't the same person once before. Like I wasn't also once dead in my sins and my trespasses. Guys, we do the same thing so often. But thank goodness, thank God, Ananias doesn't ask the question a second time. He's assured by God, no, go to him, lay your hands on him. He will be healed. And he will realize how much he must suffer for my sake, that he must go forth for the sake of my ministry. 
This man that is healed is the reason this becomes Paul and is the reason we have most of our New Testament. Levi, the one who was healed, brought into the inner circle is the reason why we have our most accurate and beautiful and wonderful account of the gospel. It's the reason why the Jews rejoiced and have the reason this beautiful genealogy that most of us, when we're reading our Bibles, skip over. But it's beautiful to the Jews. It confirmed to them that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son that included all these people that Jesus chose to graft in, that he prophesied would happen. It confirmed to them this was in fact the son of man who would come to save them. All of these people instrumentally used by God. perfectly used, healed, brought in from being outside. God using his healing to bring these people in. The church is meant to be this. Then, now, always, a place where people are healed. Even the crazy thing in between Paul's story even stops in the midst of him, the introduction of him. The healings never stopped. If you look from verse 8 to verse 9, it weirdly pauses, breaks away from Paul, and it still talks of healing, still talks of conversions, still talks of people saying, this must be the Christ. I want to be baptized immediately. The work of God never stopped, even in the midst of his persecution, in the midst of his craziness. It blows my mind. Guys, I want to confirm this to you. I'm no different. None of us are different. I, like Paul, was a child of wrath a son of disobedience. And probably one of the worst. Weirdly enough, coming up to this summer, our, yeah, one of our memory chapters is Ephesians 6. And there at the end, Paul has his prayer. He says, pray for me that I might be given words to proclaim the mystery of the gospel boldly as I ought to speak. And recently my dad went to a funeral of a dear friend and found a card for our family. Because we were missionaries, grew up as a missionary kid in Russia. And says, pray for the Jarbos that we would proclaim the gospel boldly as we ought to speak. At the age of three, my family moved to Russia, and that's where I grew up for six years. Grew up with amazing parents, and that's what they did. They boldly and wonderfully proclaimed the gospel, and that's the context I was raised in for a significant portion of my life. In this wonderful, amazing church all over Europe. But when I moved back to the States, I moved back to Arkadelphia, Arkansas, 
small town Arkansas, grew up in Moscow, Russia, one of the largest cities in the world, instead of a town of 10,000, right in the middle of the Bible Belt. And in this town, I saw what I thought was this cultural church, what I thought was just a Sunday church where people came, sang worship, left, and it was nothing else. But I was so naive. I was so wrong. But at that age, I did the opposite of what any of us should do. Instead of turning to the Word of God is the vision through which I saw the world. Instead of going to this for truth, through which I saw everything else, I went to the world through which I saw Scripture. And so I started to reject everything. And bit by bit, more and more, I started to hate God. And more and more, I started to even really hate His church. At that point, I was still quite young, so I continued to go to church with my parents. They couldn't, could not go. But by the time I got to high school, I was really in a pretty full-on rebellion. But still, I had everything the world said you would need to have to be happy. Freshman year, I started for the varsity football team. Still was not happy. That continued on. By senior year, we had won the state championship. Still was not happy. I really don't look like that now, do I? Quite small. I was at the top of my class, had everything that you, they said you should have to be happy. I had so many friends. I had multiple girls that I was dating, string of girlfriends, everything, but still my life sucked. And so I started turning to drugs, I started turning to alcohol, everything else. My, at this point, my brother was also a drug dealer, rebelling right alongside me. So anything I needed was given to me by him. My brothers still being faithful, my parents still being faithful to proclaim the gospel, still being faithful to serve, would even leave for extended periods of time, not knowing what was going on, would leave to go serve, leave on missions conferences, leave for marriage conferences, thinking I was still a good child. I had them completely deceived. They would leave the house empty to me and I would throw house parties. My life was empty, pointless and void, full of nothing. When the Bible says that you can search the world and find it empty, that was what I was doing. And the life I was living caused only destruction. When it got to my senior year, I had broken pretty much every single relationship that I had. The best friends that I'd grown up with were no longer there. All of them had disagreed with what I was doing. They would not follow me down the path that I'd taken. At that point, I was bitter and angry and shallow. And all of those relationships had been severed. Even with my other siblings, basically the only one I had was that my brother would just supply me with drugs and that was the extent of our relationship, was a transaction. And then he would show up 
to recover me from a ditch when I was passed out. One of the worst ones was a girl that in my senior year had foolishly tried to come in to date me in a missionary style of dating. And I was very unsuccessful. At that point, I was the chief of sinners alongside Paul. In that relationship, I destroyed everything. The pain that I had caused I still so deeply regret. I knew that I was going to leave. I knew that I have done so much harm in this place, in this town. I need to get out. There's no way that I'll be forgiven by the people that live here. And if God has anything, if he is still anywhere, certainly this God would never forgive me. I have too far gone. That is the lie that I had believed. I had a few people I wanted to reconcile with, these old friends that I had had. I just wanted to reach out to them, send them a few texts and just say, I'm sorry. But again, this, this one person was nowhere on this list. That was a person that in my mind, too far gone, too far away, should never forgive me, never talk to me the rest of my life. And that was the same way I felt towards God. This is a God that should never want me, never love me, never talk to me, never forgive me. If he is good, if he is holy, if he is just, that is an infinite void that can never be crossed. I'm about to leave for college and this girl simply just texts me. And the very first words are just, I forgive you. And I'm able to forgive you because Jesus Christ has first forgiven me. Then she called me out on everything that I was doing, every sin, all of my drug abuse, all the harm that I had caused, all the pain that I was in. Plainly stated that it was wrong. And once again, shared the gospel with me. I think this is one of the most beautiful depictions that we have of the gospel. And Paul is able to write this, not only because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, but because he lived it and he understood it. This was Paul. In Ephesians 2, he says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul was dead. I was dead. 
all of us in sin were dead. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that was me, that was Paul, that was any of you before Christ, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, I was called out. This was the person that should have never forgiven me, never extended kindness to me. But before I said, I was sorry, they said, I forgive you. They showed me kindness. They showed me love. That kindness is what brought me to repentance. That is what the gospel says about us. We were yet enemies of God, but in while we were yet enemies, he died for us, that we would be alive with Christ. This is the gospel. This is what it displays to us. We were dead in sin, as it says, but by grace we have been saved. On that very day, I don't know how it happened. I don't know any way to explain this, but my addictions, my drug abuse, my alcohol abuse, were broken, they were stopped. I still have many sins that I struggle with and continue to struggle with. But for some reason, those stopped. I was in love with Jesus. He was my savior and my Lord and my friend. And I left for college. I went to California Baptist University and in that first year, it was amazing. But I was in a weird place. I now knew that I loved Jesus, but still foolishly was in this mindset of I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. And that is a thing that God just won't have. So in that first year, he was tearing apart every lie that I once had believed. I immediately was immersed in this community, this church there of my friends and all these other peers were consistently, daily, nightly, we met together, confessing our sins to one another, bearing one another's burdens, worshiping late into the night. We were being the church. God was tearing apart these lies that I had believed and he was showing me, no, this is my bride. This is what she is. Whatever you have believed, it has been wrong. He was showing me the truth of scripture that his bride would be presented in white, glorious, beautiful. 
he was the one in control of the church. Sure, there were blemishes. Sure, there were spots. But on the final day, she would be presented in white. And he would be the one that would prepare her. He would be the one that would present her. And guys, she is and will be beautiful. That first semester of college changed my life as I saw what the church was. And I was now in love with Jesus and his church. But my second semester changed pretty rapidly. I went in still having both of those things, still loving God, still loving his church. But I went again from being a straight A student to now failing pretty much every single one of my classes. I wasn't able to focus on anything. I started having insane migraine headaches, just crazy brain fog, not being aware of anything. And pretty much two weeks in, I had to drop out. I had to leave college and pretty quickly had to go to the doctors and try and figure out what was, what was wrong. First, they just said, well, Jordan, you're a football player, played pretty much your whole life. You've had five concussions. You should have stopped playing at three. Maybe you've got a brain bleed. So you did a scan and very quickly they called me back said, it's not a brain bleed, but you do have a brain tumor on the right side of your brain. It's about the size of a golf ball. That actually will bring us to point number one. In biblical terms, the way that sin is most often described is as a moral leprosy. We can't relate. Leprosy basically doesn't exist for us. We don't know it. We can't recognize it. We don't see it. The term most often used today is that sin is like a cancer. And having dealt with cancer for the past four years and now having been diagnosed with it for the second time, I can tell you with personal intimacy that analogy is the most accurate one that we have today. Cancer often works in this way. It takes most of the time what is natural 
takes our natural selves and it perverts them. Sin often takes a thing that is natural. Sex, inside a natural thing, inside of marriage, between a man and a woman, is good, wonderful, amazing. But perverted by sin, perverted by anything else, outside of those things, destroys. And cancer, when unchecked, undiagnosed, unseen, multiplies. And it goes on to destroy and ultimately leads to death. So your first blank is that sin has made us spiritually terminal. In 1 Peter 2, 11, it says this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. I'm going to read that again. Beloved, he's not saying this as someone who doesn't love you. He's not saying it as someone who is unfamiliar. He was writing this to those who he truly loved, to those who he truly knew. Not as an awkward middle schooler at the dance, first time, swaying back and forth, who doesn't understand the phrase, beloved, who doesn't understand the word love. He knew what it meant. Beloved. Now I am saying this to you. And I understand the phrase. Listen to what I am about to say. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. If we're understanding rightly that any disease, any sickness, that if cancer has the power to destroy and kill the body, 
then I'll ask you this, what is more dangerous? Cancer, whatever is destroying, killing the body, or what can kill and destroy, wage war against the soul? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is plain. The soul is of greater value. Sin, again, is as a cancer to your soul. It has made us spiritually terminal and without a healer, without God coming in to intervene, we are, as Paul says, dead in our trespasses and sins. So what are we to do? We are meant to confess our sins to one another. That is how we deal with sin. That is how we confront it. That's how we are actually healed from it. The church, as I said at the beginning, is meant to be a place of healing. We're meant to enter into sin. If there's anywhere where sin is exposed, anywhere where it's dealt with, anywhere where we actually come together for this purpose, it should be the church. It should always be the case where this is common in the church. It should not be that we're surprised by it when it comes up. If someone's sin comes forward, it shouldn't be that we're acting in surprise and, and pointing fingers. But in fact, should be that we're greeting them with love and in kindness. Sometimes correction, yes. But if there is sin anywhere, it in fact should be in the church so that it can be taken care of, so that it can be dealt with, so that it can be settled, so that it can be healed from. And the confession of sin was never, ever meant to be a thing that is just between me and God and that alone. James 5 tells us this, and it confronts that idea. It says that we should be confessing actually our sins to one another. James 5. If this, has anyone committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. That right there is confronting that idea that it is not just between you and God. It is not just between you and one another, another person. In fact, it was common in the early church for it to be you and the entire congregation. Deal with that. 
That's hard. That would be confronting for us to do. It's hard for me to try and come up and tell all of you all of my sins. That would be scary. But that was in fact the norm for the early church. Galatians 6.2, a verse that many of us might actually have memorized, is that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How can any one of us bear another person's burden if it's hidden in the dark? If it hasn't been confessed, if it hasn't been told to another? How can anyone help you if it's unknown? So point number two is this, embracing our diagnosis. This terminal diagnosis actually makes way for our healing. Now we'll look at Psalm 139. And Tozer makes an interesting point about this psalm. This is where you were this morning for your Devo. Long this has been a psalm of great comfort for many going to it the way that we were knitted in our mother's womb. A God who knows us, a God who sees us, that should be a thing of great comfort. How wonderful, how sweet in our times of hurt, in our times of pain, when we have been wounded, struck down, when we think we are alone, God sees us. Even before we came into the world, He was making us, knitting us in our mother's womb. Before we ever took a breath, He was the one designing us. How intimately does God know us? That is indeed a thing of great comfort. But Tozer takes this psalm, flips it on its head. He says this about it. That if we, knowing the omniscience of God, should seek to hide anything, should want to not confess any sin. That should be cause for fear. In fact, how foolish of us. Because where should we go? Where are you going to hide? Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed and shield in hell, you are there. If I take up the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Tozer's point is this, that there is nowhere we can run, nowhere we can hide from God. Like Adam and Eve, it would be childish, foolish of us to try and cover ourselves up thinking God cannot see us. Guys, if we try and think like this, that we can just turn off the lights, 
and God's not going to see us. Well, guess what? It's as bright as day to God. It does nothing for him. He sees through the darkness. There is nowhere we can do. We're just like Adam and Eve, childish, foolish, thinking we can hide ourselves in fig leaves. But God, being kind, just like Adam and Eve, called out to them. It's not because he didn't see them. He knew exactly where they were in the garden. But he called to them, telling them to come out. Again, he knew exactly where they were. He just said, where are you? Come on out. There is no reason for us to hide anything. Again, the other part of this psalm is this, that if we are in fact saints, if we should in fact confess our sin, then this is then not a psalm and reason for fear, but the psalm of greatest comfort because it means this. God, knowing everything already, it means that there is then no talebearer. That means no accuser. That is the title of Satan. The Satan, the accuser. No one can come before God No one can say to him, look what they have done. Look what Jordan has done. Look what Stephen has done. Look what Dean has done. Look what Desi has done. No one can say, look what they have done. No one can shock God. No one can surprise him. No one can catch him off guard and say, look what you have done. He knows. He's not surprised by it, not shocked by it. From the beginning of time, he knew and he sent his son to die for us that we would be alive in Christ and that we would be his sons and heirs with him. From the beginning of time, he loved us, had that planned, and nothing would shock him. He knows. And there is therefore no reason for us to hold on to any sin as much as we might want to. Guys, there is then no reason for us to be alone in any sin. Week after week, we've had student after student as they have been confessing their sins, thinking, I am alone in this. And almost every single time, the next person has said, actually, I struggle with that too. Actually, when I went, I was afraid to share that one. But, me too. Guys, I promise you, you're not alone. What has been going on in my body, what has been going on in my head, has made me so sick, so tired, so weary. But the thing that makes me more tired, more weary, is my sin. I long for the day when it is dealt with, when it is done. But even with this going on, I can stand before you now saying, even with that going on, today I am already healed. The price of my sin has been paid for. I will be fine. 
And one day I will get to greet my Savior, my Lord, and my friend face to face. And that is the thing I long for most in all the world. So again, I'm pleading with you, do not hold on to any of this sin. Do not hold on to anything that is waging war against your flesh. But instead, let it go. Because Christ Puritans have a phrase that there are some things you cannot say without a quivering lip. Because Christ has died for it. Do not waste, do not squander that by holding on to sin. Point three, we can extend healing because we have been healed. Again, like Paul, like Matthew, who was, who was Saul, who was Levi, they were made new, they were healed, and now for the rest of their lives, they were extending this healing. They were not keeping it to themselves. That is then the call of the Christian life, now and always. Guys, tonight and for the rest of this week, there may be some of you that have much pain that is going on, much sin that is going on. Some of you may need to be more so like Paul in this week and tonight. Some of you may, a little more so, may need to be like Ananias, extending prayer, extending healing, extending friendship, extending kindness. But our call is always to be, if we have indeed been healed, to then extend that healing. It does not and should not ever be kept to ourselves. In both of our chapters of memory, in 1 Peter 2, Ephesians 6, it gives a proclamation, an order for proclamation, that we should proclaim the excellencies of Him who has brought us out of darkness into His marvelous light. If that has happened for you, go and do it. Like Levi, you're recognizing who He is. Invite all of your friends that they would be healed. Like Paul, he was healed and he went to the nations. That more and more and more would know that Jesus is Lord. Like it says at the beginning of 1 Peter, if you have indeed tasted and seen that he is good, experientially seen that, tasted that, known that, Bring it to others that they would have the same. That is the Christian life, now and always. And the last point is just a simple reminder that we would not get puffed up, that like, as we sometimes can, so we would not again be like the Pharisees, 
that we would not be self-righteous in ourselves, that God alone is the healer. We can start to think for ourselves, man, I'm doing a lot. A lot of people are being healed. A lot of people are getting to know Christ. I can do nothing of my own. We should always be reminded of the words, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Of my own accord, I heal no one. I can probably only cause more pain. That is our final reminder as we look at this, that God is alone, the healer. The best thing we can do for anyone is to point them to him, not to ourselves, not to our own words, not to our own advice even. The best thing we can do is to point them to this. Peter recognizes God to whom Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He didn't say to whom shall we go? Jordan, you have the words of eternal life. Kimmy, you have the words of eternal life. Any of you have the words of eternal life. You don't. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. If we can do anything good in bringing healing to anyone else, it should be to bring them into the community of the church that together we would be built up as a spiritual house towards the purpose of together acknowledging, worshiping, lifting Christ on high. God alone is our healer. In him are we healed. This line, this stanza in this, in Christ alone, is so beautiful. That on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. That is, in fact, all of us, if we are indeed in Christ. That in him alone, because of that sacrifice on the cross, it is now the case for all of us. then the only thing left for us to do is now together to run to that healer. I'll pray this out in a second. Before I do, tonight there will just be one conch. Just to let you know. And it will just be to say goodnight. So as you go, make the best use of the time. I hope sincerely you don't waste any time tonight. If you have this time, go and use it to confess your sins, to be healed. And if it turns into praise, into laughter, into joy, wonderful. I hope that is the case. But don't squander the time don't waste it.
<sighs> Dear Lord, <sighs> thank you for this group and for your son's sacrifice on the cross. that in Christ alone, we have salvation. In Christ alone, we have been set free. That because of him, I need no other plea. I need no other argument. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me, and that he died for us. God, help us to recognize that. God, I pray that you would in fact soften our hearts. You would even forgive my, my long-windedness and my fervor for your word. And you would just bless this time in conversation tonight for all these things in your name, in your son Jesus' name, amen.